Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and very happy to present a very special discussion about Brexit and what it means for British security. There's been lots of debate in the media between politicians, between the Remain camp and the Leave camp, but much less discussion amongst people who've been at the front line, who've actually been defending the security of the realm. And uh, thrilled today to have a number of people who've been at the highest level in many of the different services that are employed to keep this country safe. And I'll introduce them in turn. Our first uh, speaker is um, Nigel Inkster, who is uh, form- formerly on the board of MI6, the Security and Intelligence Service, and he's currently uh, at the IISS think tank. Uh, second speaker is uh, Dame Pauline Neville-Jones, Baroness Pauline Neville-Jones, who is a former... Uh, head of the Joint Intelligence Committee, a very senior uh, diplomat in the in the Foreign Office, but then had a second life uh, as um, government minister in charge of, uh, of security as well in the Home Office. Our third uh, contributor is Simon Foy, who's the former head of the Metropolitan Police's Homicide and Serious Crimes Command. And uh, our fourth Contributor is Vice Admiral Sir Anthony Dimmock, who is a former UK military representative to NATO and to the European Union, a former defence attaché in Washington, but before that saw active service in various different uh, theatres in the Gulf, in the Falkland Islands, and uh, in many other uh, parts of the world, I think, as well. And finally, uh, joined again by uh, Nick Whitney, uh, who is currently a senior policy fellow at ECFR, but had a prior life to that in the MOD, in the Foreign Office, and was also head of the European Defence Agency, in fact, the first head of the European Defence Agency. So um, why don't we start with you, uh, Nigel? You've uh, you've been uh, a, a former top spy you've been in charge of, of both trying to understand the threats to this country but also to, to work out what we can do to to defend them how does the idea of a brexit affect britain's security from your perspective and uh, the short answer is in the short term probably not a huge amount there are some things that we would instantly lose uh, and key amongst those i think is uh, automatic entitlement to uh, the kind of data sets that are so important uh, in the world of uh, counterterrorism, where you, you're looking to combine uh, different sets of data, travel data, telephone usage data, other forms of communication, financial transactions, um, in order to winnow these down and identify targets that you particularly want to focus on. Uh, if the United Kingdom was going to leave uh, um, the European Union, then our intelligence community would no longer have uh, automatic entitlement to these data sets. We'd have to renegotiate them and we'd have to go through all the effort of proving that we were going to be able to handle this data uh, and provide it with the same levels of protection that uh, uh, are required within the EU. So that is already a fairly significant issue. Um, There are also, I think, longer-term and more insidious uh, impacts uh, to to the UK. 
And I think it's possibly less to do with Europe per se, though we would no longer be a member of that club. We would no longer be uh, quite as well placed to promote the sort of best practice in areas of counterterrorism that we actually possess, uh, as we would if we were inside. But I think there's also an insidious question about how the United States, our key intelligence ally still, would perceive a Europe that is outside uh, a, a UK that is outside Europe uh, and begin to question uh, exactly um, how important and how valuable this uh, relationship uh, um, would be in the future. I mean, obviously, that would be put to the test and uh, it would be determined by results. Uh, cooperation in the intelligence uh uh, domain is at the end of the day transactional as a function of what people uh, bring uh, to the table but I think there would be questions. That's fascinating so you think even our relationship with the five eyes could be compromised <coughs> by leaving the European Union? Well I think the five eyes have rather different uh, sets of perceptions the United States have made their position clear I think Canada probably uh, lines up with the uh, the United States quite closely. I think within Australia, in their favourite thing, in I think in Australia, um, possibly the the um, a tendency uh, moves in the other direction. Well, the government has actually said stay in. Yeah, the government has stayed. Michael yeah. Howard has yeah, said exactly. It's something yeah. different. <laughs> um, so I think broadly speaking, the uh, you know the the the, the five eyes uh, uh, see um value in the UK staying in and it's really a function of the fact that if at the end of the day the United Kingdom derives I think a lot of its influence uh, in the world and a lot of its power from the fact that it is actually a member of all the best clubs in town uh, and uh, you know we're not, men- not a member of the Shanghai Corporation organization uh, but uh, we're, we're, we're a member of uh, all the clubs worth joining and the problem with that is that uh, once you start leaving the clubs, once you start uh, no longer paying your membership dues, people start uh, asking questions about you. So, Pauline, you sat at, sat at most of the top tables um, in all these clubs that <laughs> Nigel was talking about. How do you see the security situation being affected by Brexit? What's this? I, I think it, it is affected, and I think it's affected neg- negatively, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, I mean, uh, Europe faces, I suppose, at the moment, three threats. Uh, we face uh, a, th- a, a, uh, a rising China, not necessarily a threat, but certainly a challenge to world stability and leadership. It's a long way away from us, but we're still affected by it. We're very directly affected by the, the behavior of Russia on our borders, and some of, the, uh, some of our NATO and EU members do feel threatened and at risk in their relationship to the Baltic states. Uh, they, uh, this is a declining power, but a fairly, uh, the one at the moment, pretty aggressive in its behaviour towards us and actually increasing its military capabilities in a wholly unnecessary way and and quite dangerous. And then, of course, there is the ideological and internal security terrorist threat of Daesh and the general instability of the Middle East and North Africa. So, you know, we're no longer in a calm neighbourhood. We were for about 10 years. It's now very, very different. So defence and security, and active defence and security, really matters. Now, I'm not going to deal with NATO because I've got somebody who's more equipped to talk about that in a moment than, than I. But I do want to say that I think that increasingly what we witness, even in the military sphere, is increasing cooperation and and division of, of burden-sharing and effort between 
NATO and NATO capabilities and actually those in the EU, which have undertaken smaller military tasks, but nevertheless ones that are directly related to our security. So we would be removing ourselves if we left the EU from some of that. We would also put ourselves in the position where the diplomatic response comes, and many of these situations are very hybrid in nature, where actually part of the European, indeed, world response is essentially you know, sanctions, economic, not necessarily military. Where's the decision-making locus for that, say, in relation to Ukraine uh, or, or uh, in relation to, to what might happen in the Baltic states? It's actually in the European Union, where, of course, the Germans have a very big stake. If we had not been you know, members of the European Union, we would have found ourselves having actually to accept... Uh, the restrictions on sanctions, as the Norwegians have over their oil companies, Statoil, without any say. Also, any, any financial sanctions that had been imposed, the city would not have had a say because the government would not have been there either to defend or promote their interests. Very, very important. So you're removing yourself from a decision-making... Field. People not, may not think that it's important to us or that it's an important decision-making place, but it is. The other thing I would say is that Intelligence is absolutely crucial, obviously, to good security, but you've got to use it. And I've got somebody next door to me who's going to talk about it and talk about policing. But the point I'd make is that actually when it comes to policing on our frontier, and Europe is we're so fortunate in our geography, you know, we have a continental buffer. We should be pushing our security out to the furthest point we can, not drawing our frontier towards us and our physical security towards us, which is likely to happen you know, if the French then denounce uh, the, uh, the Treaty of Canterbury and we find that the so-called Calais jungle is suddenly on UK soil because all the French have to do is just to let everybody in. Um, but so, so that's a, it's a counterproductive uh, outcome. So while we're but in policing. The EU, we can keep the criminals outside. Well, we can keep. We, we are keeping a lot of people we don't want to let in, and at somebody else's expense. I mean, we'd be, be brutal about it. And why should the French go on doing that, actually, if we've really disrupted the scene? But the policing inside Europe, which needs. which has had dramatic uh, demonstration of it, you know, recently with the breakup of, of the, the French and um, Belgian ends of this ter- terrorist network, with cooperation between the police services of France and Belgium. The legal base for all of that is EU law, in which no, we have about three quarters. We don't accept it all. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we have both access to information, access to Europol, access to uh, speedy trans- uh, transmission of people you know, when we want them uh, to face our courts and so on. Now, that is a huge increment in security. It would not be not be impossible for the UK to negotiate itself back into all of that if we left the European Union. But I think I would say two things. One, it would take time and you'd have, you'd have a period when you didn't actually have a, 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 an accepted and regular mechanism. And secondly, I doubt very much. Why should it be the case that we would get back where we previously were no longer belonging to the organisation? Final thing, which is that we do have to accept there are consequences for our relationship with a EU country on our border, Ireland, uh, where we'd ha- we would suddenly have a frontier. And, of course, there is a potential consequence for our own union with Scotland. So, Simon, you've been uh, one of our top cops for a long time, um, dealing with murder and rape and child slavery and all sorts of other horrible things. English. <laughs> yeah. 
How do you yeah. see this situation? Um, just um, probably slightly um, distinct from, from the other distinguished uh, speakers today, I, I, the, the, the duty of police and policing is to, you know, Sir Robert Peel said it in the 1820s when Europe was, I suppose, in a state of turmoil similar to it is now. But, you know, what he said then was, is, is, you know, is, is as applicable today as it was in the 1820s, which is the duty of police is to prevent and detect crime and keep the peace. Um, and so, uh, you know, from a police perspective, I mean, if you look at some of the threats from a from an organised crime and criminality point of view that are heading our way from from the rest of the world, I mean, they're largely around issues around cybercrime, economic crime, fraud, um, child sexual exploitation, lots of stuff around immigration crime, and that's even before we've started talking about the good old favourites of guns and drugs. Mm. Um, so there's a you know there's a lot of stuff stuff sloshing out there which. It's our duty as a police service to to try and get ahead of and get on top of. So if you go back to that, you know, what we're about is um, preventing and detecting crime and getting evidence to allow um, criminals to be prosecuted and do it in a way and in a manner that allows the public to be confident in what we're doing. Um, we, We need things like information, we need things like intelligence, we need to be able to act quickly and and rapidly, we need to be very agile in in actually finding out things from other jurisdictions and other people, because, you know, organised criminality and indeed some of the factors around local crime and volume crime and and and, and, and thefts and burglaries and and and, and uh, you know public order offences some of it has a international and a multi-jurisdictional dimension so therefore to deal with that we actually have to be quick agile fast efficient uh, and one of the things that actually is is about at the moment is that there's a fair amount of stuff which we've gone through a lot of pain to get to the point where we're now starting to reap some benefits. So the the obvious example is the European arrest warrant, which started off as a as a sort of much maligned thing, a complicated exercise, and in 2004 there was about a couple of hundred cases where it was used. It's now into the tens of thousands where it's actually used, and we've sort of got onto this that this is a good, efficient, fast way of getting hold of people that we want who are in Europe and allowing our colleagues in Europe to get hold of people who we've got here. Um, that sounds fairly simple, but it's taken a while to develop, and it would seem a shame, really, to sort of move away from all of that, and we would have to go back to a series of bilateral renegotiations, which wouldn't be effective as what is quite a complicated multilateral arrangement at the moment. Well, extradition, traditional extradition, takes takes months, months, yes, months if not yeah. years. Yeah. Mm. So did you ever use mm. the European Yeah, yeah, I mean, I what used the... I mean, it, you know, it was Cuba, well, you know, the, the yeah. ones I was aware of in my time in the Specialist Crime Directorate in the Met was, were cases around uh, human trafficking, mm. uh, cases, certainly cases around um, money laundering and, mm. and organised crime. Uh, certainly, um, there were there were instances where people who had committed some quite serious criminality over here and volume criminals over here. What's a volume? Criminal? Well, a volume criminal. So someone who commits a large proportion of crime. So you may, may be somebody who's committed multiple burglaries or multiple thefts or multiple multiple cyber crime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, or the, but, the, but someone who has actually got a fair amount of criminal behaviour, yeah. then you'll you'll realise that you know they have a you know that sort of track record in Europe. Now, there, now there, of course, there is a debate that says, well, how the hell did they get in here in the first place? 
and, and you know that is something which probably we always need to be alert to and try and get better at but the point is that once we knew who these people were then the quicker we were able to get them back to where they came from so to speak uh, you know it w- was to the to the public to the public good and to the to the public benefit um so so i you know, I, I think there's a whole range of things that have gone on or are, are happening in, in within the European Union infrastructure, from the European arrest warrant to the ability of of Eurodress to allow us to run you know, trials in in two separate jurisdictions at the same time, to the the you know the the ability to run joint investigation teams, and I have run those for both rape and for homicide. I you you can run an investigation alongside a, another country's uh, police, and and you can actually conduct it together and make sure it's all properly integrated and and uh, uh, and delivered to best effect. Um, so there's a whole lot of things which are going on, but perhaps um, it may seem as the most interesting um, thing that I think as a as a as a professional cop is that I think there's been a huge source of wisdom which has come out of things like the European. Uh, human rights um, arrangements. The 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 uh, the European Court, I think, has given us a number of judgments which actually have given us probably a better and more effective way of policing. Now, now, what I mean by that is, um, in those high pressure situations, which I've experienced often myself, when you are making a decision as to whether, particularly if there's a crime in action, so perhaps a kidnapping, a potential armed robbery, something which is highly dangerous and you're deploying armed police officers to make an intervention at the the safest time for the public and for them, there's some pretty serious discussions that take place about when is the best time to do that. And I can honestly say that those conversations, hard-nosed operational conversations, are dominated by things like human rights. Uh, and a number of times I've heard the word Article 2 mentioned in one of those discussions is, is you know... Is, what is Article 2? Art is the right to, right to life. OK. Um, so, so it, it, you know, it, it, it is, it is a, a really, really important part of helping us to become a more effective police service. So, broadly, two things. One is it would seem a shame to not have the availability to call on these fairly efficient multilateral arrangements to deal with some serious criminal threats. And the second thing is that I think there has been a fair amount of wisdom and experience built up in Europe over the past you know, couple of decades or so, which has actually made British policing more effective and more efficient. Okay. So, Vice Admiral Dimmock, you've been involved in trying to rule the re- rule the waves, have you not? <laughs> How do you see the security situation on on the kind of hard security front? Well, I think these days it's increasingly hard to separate hard security from the rest of security. Obviously, the security of the state, mm-hmm. in the sense of you know, defending ourselves from invasion, uh, maintaining inter- territorial integrity, falls to the military. But most of the real threats we face today are more globalised and slightly less identifiable than a man coming over the border with a gun. Um, The military clearly have a role at the high end, but they also have a supporting role elsewhere because of the nature of their capabilities, which you don't just lock away for Armageddon. Uh, There's lots of extended reach and support that we can and do provide. And I think that interesting debate here in Europe is that Europe 
does not have a particularly potent array of military capability, but increasingly the fact that it's worked together for so long at integrating its softer power with its law enforcement and increasing its overseas reach to tackle problems at source rather than at the border means that um, there is a significant contribution that the EU makes to world security. Uh, as of today, the EU military staff in Brussels is running 15 operations, uh, mainly in Africa, um, some at sea, some ashore. Uh, and that's a significant contribution. And in many ways, some of them are preventive. Um, you won't necessarily see the results of, of, of those. Um, if you trap a trafficker off Somalia, it's better than trapping him off Dover. Uh, and the EU military... Um, has been largely um, focused on territorial defence for many years. Not many European countries have had an expeditionary capability. Traditionally, that's been the French and the Brits. Um, but drawing 28 different militaries, some of whom were fighting each other, some of whom were on opposite sides in the Cold War, together in a cohesive way, has been something I think the Brits have been quite good at encouraging the transformation of old-style, um, large-scale armies into more agile, uh, flexible and, and deployable um, contingents who can join in a coalition of the willing to face some of these global threats that are, are being uh, talked about. And because of Britain's history, um, perhaps more martial than, than some of the other European countries, we've been able to provide leadership, we've encouraged... Uh, interoperability, We've run, we run the biggest exercises in, in, in Europe, and I think there's a huge leadership role which perhaps won't be missed by the man in the street in London, but I think it would certainly be missed in, in Europe, where um, UK provides a different perspective from the possibility of perhaps a French and German directoire on um, foreign policy and, and security issues. So I think my argument would be that leaving the EU would be an act of selfishness and a, and a major loss to European security in, in a broad sense, even though our own direct security wouldn't be directly threatened because we're still very active members of NATO. But remember that 19 members of NATO are Europeans as well. So if their security improves as nation-states then they're helping NATO and they're helping the EU. Uh, and to drive a wedge between the, the two, as I think our departure would, um, would be to no one's advantage. I, I'm slightly less sanguine than you about the effect on our direct national security, because um, we do get you know, the currently you know, French, help from the French over maritime surveillance. Uh, that would be in question. It wouldn't necessarily stop, but it, we couldn't guarantee it. Uh, we would also have the problem of, of a new land border, a new, a new EU non-EU border you know, across Northern Ireland, Ireland. Uh, we would have problems maintaining the common travel area. What would we do with it between Ireland and the UK? Uh, would it then become a tight border, inhibiting, therefore, free traffic that we've always had? Or would it become a loose border, which was yeah. potentially a back route you know, for people who didn't really want to let into the country? So I think, in fact, it does raise... Uh, you know more more problems for national security and of an immediate kind than may be realised. And if if in course in the uh, the the area the the Scots then decided to depart, we would have a land border you know, halfway up our our island. 
No, this would be a, a wholly we'll new world. Rebuild Hadrian's Wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's 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 it, it is a, it could be a very very different world from us, mm. for us. So Nick, you've also you've been coming at hard security questions from the civilian side rather than the military side. I mean, how, did you agree with with what Vice Admiral Dimmock said, or have you got a different perspective? <clears throat> well, I, I think there's been no doubt that. In the 20 years since we launched the uh, Tony Blair and Jack Chirac launched the European Defence Initiative, it's it's been a it's been a veil of tears. I mean, it's been really hard slogging to get sensible progress on European defence cooperation for for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but uh, foremost amongst them, I would say, was that uh, we, the Brits, who are meant to be leading the process, actually <laughs> got rather bored with it and. Um, moved our position from leadership to a sort of vaguely benign neglect to outright obstructionism in recent years, leaving the French to try to animate the process. And even they have gone rather cold on it at the moment. So although there are many of those slow, insidious benefits which do come from, from familiarity, from sharing thinking, from developing interoperability and procedures that allow you to work together, uh, I do think that on the whole we have to say that today the European Defence Project is, is promise unfulfilled. Um, and that is A, massively inefficient. It's a huge waste of resources. Uh, between us in Europe we spend more money on defence than the Chinese and the Russians put together. And where does that leave us in terms of the output we obtain from this? Um, and it hasn't mattered, as Pauline said, you know, we've been living in this life, nice a historical security bubble for, for the last 20 years. But unfortunately, the outside world is beginning to break in on us again. And, and where I think it, it's fundamentally important that we, we do, as collectively as Europeans, um, start taking steps to fulfil this promise more thoroughly than it has been to date, is that the transatlantic relationship depends on it. And Obama will be here in the next couple of days exhorting us to stay in Europe. Why? Not because he's desperately concerned for the plight of the British, but because the whole American perception of the way the transatlantic relationship works is that those Europeans have got to sharpen up. And that includes us as much as it does the continental Europeans. We've got to do less free riding, take a greater share of the burden. And to that extent... European militaries doing more, and that will inevitably mean greater cooperation between them, is a necessary condition for maintaining a healthy transatlantic alliance in the future. London is the last place in Europe where people will talk about the rivalry or the distinction between European defence and NATO. It's not seen that way anymore, fundamentally in Washington, where, where us which ultimately underpins our security, or indeed anywhere else in Europe. The, the two things are merged together. The Europeans need to do better. We, as Brits, have an interest and a responsibility to lead that process in a way which we haven't in recent years. And so my own belief is that, that our national security does defend, depend fundamentally on what we can do in the years ahead to contribute to a more serious and coherent defence effort in Europe. So it's not often that I get to sit in a room with a spy, a diplomat, a cop, an admiral and a top defence official. In fact, it sounds a bit more like a film by Peter Greenaway than a podcast. But it was an absolutely fascinating discussion and there was a surprising amount of consistency across the views of people who've been working in such different areas of British security. If you enjoyed the discussion, 
please do tweet about it, post it on your Facebook page, or give us a review and a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud or Mixcloud. And write to me with comments at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. We will be posting links to all the articles that we have written on the subject of British security and the referendum at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. And for now, from Nigel Inkster, Pauline Neville-Jones, Simon Foy, Anthony Dimmick, Nick Whitney and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye for now. The researcher of our podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katarina Butel-Azzinaro. Mm-hmm.